This episode of the Outside Interview is brought to you by Biolite Energy, a company whose camp stove has been entered in a race on my porch against a very popular name brand stove to see which one boils a cup of water faster. So the rules of this are we each get to get our flames going and whichever gets to a, a rolling boil first wins. Let, let the games begin. The upside to the Biolite so, is that it uses so no fossil fuels, just sticks, twigs, pine cones, and leaves. All right, are you ready? Yep. On the countdown, three, two, one. Also, according to our somewhat scientific test, it boils water faster than the popular name brand stove. Oh my goodness, I think, oh, you've got boilage. Hold on, hold on, hold on, we gotta look at mine. Oh no, I've just got little bubbles. Go to biolightenergy.com slash outside and enter yes outside at checkout for 20% off your order. That's biolightenergy.com slash outside with the code yes outside as one word at checkout. This episode is also brought to you by Stay Roasted. Stay Roasted is a subscription service for your coffee, delivering specialty grade coffee beans hand selected to your tastes straight to your door. It's simple. Set some basic preferences, and Stay Roasted helps you create a roaster lineup from dozens of America's celebrated coffee roasters. When it's refill time, your next roaster is queued and ready to roast. Stay Roasted plans start at only 60 cents per brewed cup, and there's no commitments. Try it for yourself. Visit stayroasted.com outside to get your first bag of coffee for free. You only pay shipping. That's stayroasted.com outside. From Outside Magazine and PRX, this is the Outside Interview. I'm just going to test your guys' mics. With Chris Katz. Because of our name, Outside pays pretty close attention to incoming and outgoing Secretaries of the Interior. I mean, it's one person in charge of 20% of the land in the U.S., with a mandate to manage and preserve the country's natural resources. For the last three and a half years, that person has been Sally Jewell, a particularly interesting choice for a position that we're particularly interested in. I think she was the second woman to be Secretary of Interior, and she has she's an engineer and worked in the oil and gas industry in the early part of her career, and then was CEO of REI, which gave her a really great perspective on the outdoor industry. But then, as results came in on election night, things got even more interesting. Our editor, Chris Kyes, has been planning on doing a kind of exit interview with Jewel ever since we launched the podcast. But the election of President Trump changed the whole point of the conversation. I knew immediately I was going to have to scrap all my questions because it was really going to be a question about what was going to stick and what um, she saw as, as being threatened by the new administration in terms of the policy that they've been working on for eight years. Rather than take issue with any specific position that the new administration has on environmental issues, let's just acknowledge that, for the most part, we have hardly any idea what Trump's positions even are. Environmentalists, at least, are in the position of, of hoping that, um, that some of his stances aren't as rigid, particularly on, on climate science, um, which, in his interview with the New York Times yesterday, he was saying that he was, you know, keeping an open mind about it, whereas he was much more of a hard line during the campaign. In that interview, the New York Times asks about climate change and how he'll approach the Paris Agreement. And Trump says, quote, You know, the hottest day ever was in 1890-something, 98. You know, you can make a lot of cases for different points of view. I have a totally open mind. 
My uncle was, for 35 years, a professor at MIT. He was a great engineer, scientist. He was a great guy. And he was, a long time ago, he had feelings. This is a long time ago. He had feelings on this subject. It's a very complex subject. I'm not sure anybody is ever going to really know. End quote. So, no one knows how Trump feels about climate change. Least of all Trump, it sounds like. For concerned citizens, the question becomes, worst case scenario, what's his most likely path forward? From a resources management perspective, what's the game plan? And there's probably no one more qualified to talk about that than Sally Jewell, who, as I hear at the end, gets pretty emotional about the transition. You know, no matter what your party is, if you're a human being, you can understand the kind of incredible disappointment to work in one administration um, and for four straight years be working on a set of policies and then your team doesn't win and wondering if that's all going to be thrown in the, in the wastebasket. And so I think that there was a lot of that kind of contemplation going on with her. Here's Chris in conversation with Secretary of the Interior. Sally Jewell. Well, let's start with the big news. Uh, we're nine days out from the election, and um, if you weren't shocked, I imagine you were surprised by the outcome. I'm wondering what your day was like Wednesday um, with this new reality. Well, let's say it was a reflective day for all of us. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think that uh, certainly there's disappointment. Um, that we all had in, uh, in the outcome, but also tremendous respect for the democratic process. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as I reflect on what we inherited uh, eight years ago when President Obama took over, and we had a uh, minerals management service that had been um, accused rightfully of having too close of a relationship, uh, in fact, some illegal activity with the oil and gas industry. About a year into the president's tenure, we had the Deepwater Horizon oil spill. Mm-hmm. And that was what we inherited. Ken Salazar, I think, did a great job of taking that on, revamping the uh, whole way we look at energy, mm-hmm. rebuilding Americans' trust in the federal government and its role as a, uh, a balanced overseer of our nation's lands and resources. And you know, he had to deal with a spill, which was very, very difficult, mm-hmm. but he still stood up renewable energy on public lands and got that rolling. I feel good about the kind of circumstances we're handing over to the next administration. You know, I can't express enough gratitude and appreciation for President Obama for giving me this opportunity and, frankly, for um, running the country uh, the way he has. He has given us the ability to really structure the lands and resources and our relationship with Native Americans in the way that we saw fit, and he's been supportive of that. So, you know, I look on this uh, time that I've been here, close to four years, with tremendous gratitude, Mm -hmm. and yet it's the hardest thing I've ever done, but it's also the most rewarding thing I've ever done. So as we support this transition, we will do the best that we can. Uh, particularly working with the incredible career staff to um, make that transition smooth and hopefully maintain the momentum that we've got going in so many ways that I think are good for the long term, not just this generation, but future generations. Well, one of the things that, uh, you know, was very interesting coming out of um, President Obama's first meeting with President-elect Trump was 
he took some time to advocate for his, you know, his signature legislation, the, the Affordable Care Act. And we don't know who the next Secretary of Interior are, is going to be. There's been a lot of names um, uh, floated out there already. But if you had that opportunity to sit down with that one-on-one -on -one meeting, what would be, you know, looking at this legacy that you just laid out, what would be the point that you would really want to ha hammer home and hope to see that isn't uh, unwound uh, in the next four years? Well, I hope I do have that opportunity. I certainly will make myself available, and I hope that whoever my successor is will take that opportunity, not just with me, but with former secretaries of the interior from both parties. Mm -hmm. Because I think that, uh, as the president expressed to the president-elect, once you're sitting in the chair and you understand the size and the complexity and the importance of your work, um, you look at it maybe a little different way than you did when um, what, you, what you thought when you first came in. So what I would say to that a new Secretary of the Interior is, first we all come with a set of skills. I came with a set of business skills, but I did not come with a set of government skills. And those are useful, but not sufficient. Mm -hmm. So surround yourself with people that round out your team to help, help fill those gaps that you don't have. Second thing I'd say is, this job is about listening. It's about listening deeply to different points of view. And as I have traveled the country, gone into rural communities, listened to ranchers and oil and gas developers, onshore, offshore, environmentalists, outdoor recreationalists, mm -hmm. um, citizens of those communities, local elected officials who are getting pounded every day with the things that matter most to the people living in those communities, it's shaped my thinking about what is the right course of action. So uh, I would explain to my successor that that's really important, uh, to listen, to not go in with a fixed frame, mm -hmm. and to recognize that um, American people expect you to exercise common sense and pragmatism and not ideology. Is there any specific policy that you guys have worked on that you would address in that meeting? I would say the most pressing issue of our time is climate change. Uh, you cannot be Secretary of the Interior and get out into our lands and resources and deal with the wildfires and the droughts and the invasive species encroachment and the coastal erosion and the impact on communities and human beings, particularly tribal communities, and I'd say the front lines of climate change would be the Arctic mm -hmm. for the United States, without recognizing that climate change is real. And the Department of the Interior is in a very important position to change that. To do our jobs, we have to adapt to a changing climate, which is happening right now. But also, we have the potential to change that outcome by mitigating the impact uh, standing up renewable energy projects, y using the science of the USGS on uh, new opportunities for technology like carbon capture and sequestration, for example. All of these are uh, really, really important. So that's the one area where I'd say, you know, this is a big deal and this isn't about us. Yeah. This is about future generations. And I completely agree. I guess what I'm concerned <laughs> is that, you know, at least from some of the names floated, you could be looking at uh, uh, a, a climate denier uh, across the table from you and wondering how that conversation is going to go. Um, but 
I guess we're hoping for the best. Well, let's just say that I was uh, not in the newspapers when I was picked by President Obama to be his second Secretary of yeah. the Interior. I don't think we have any idea. But I will say that uh, no matter what beliefs a person may come into this job with, this job has a way of um, showing you what's really going on in mm -hmm. the world. Mm -hmm. And you cannot be in this position and be out on these landscapes and deny that climate change is going on. It's just too obvious. Mm -hmm. You've made it a point uh, throughout your four years of, of striking this balance between conservation and, and the needs for um, uh, particularly the oil and gas industry to, um, to have access to some areas of our public lands. Um, what we do know, at least you know, based on campaign promises, is that, that this administration plans to be a lot more lax and open up the doors. Um, to to a, an average citizen like myself, walk me through what, what are the, the challenges they're going to face? Is it something that they can change overnight and a lot of these places that we thought were safe um, can be open? Or is there a lot more resistance um, and sort of polish the inertia um, before that, that can really get, the, the gears can really be revved up. Well, what we inherited again at the beginning of the Obama administration was more of a piecemeal uh, permitting process for oil and gas both onshore and offshore. What we have developed over the course of the last eight years is a much more thoughtful landscape level view of the resources. We also inherited tons of lawsuits because when you don't do uh, thoughtful development in the right ways and in the right places, uh, you're going to get challenged. What businesses want, and I know this, I used to be in the oil and gas industry and then as a banker and of course at REI, um, what you want is certainty. You don't mind playing by the rules, but you want to know what the rules are. And when the rules are stretched, like uh, National Environmental Policy Act, the NEPA, and the environmental impact statements that are required, or the consultation with tribal communities that is required in the National Historic Preservation Act, you will get challenged in court. And our courts are an important tool to keep us honest with regard to whether we're upholding the law. Mm -hmm. What we have created in this administration is a landscape level view. So we have done far more landscape level planning that says what are the areas that are appropriate to develop and what are the areas that should be off limits to development. So we've codified some of that. Um, for example, we've done some national monument designations in this massive collaborative effort called uh, the preserving the sagebrush sea so that the greater sage-grouse didn't need to be listed as an endangered species. Mm -hmm. What we've done is made available with the collaboration of states to people wanting to develop what the critical habitat areas are that should not be disturbed. Mm -hmm. You know, what are the areas that really don't matter as much if they're disturbed and you know kind of where the gray area in between. That has created a path forward where people um, that want to develop know where to go first and how to prioritize that. That's not going to get rolled back because it's common sense and it's pragmatic and it pulls up and takes a long-term view and it deconflicts the areas in advance because it is uh, expensive for a company to be involved in protracted litigation. Mm -hmm. Um, and it is frankly damaging to their reputation 
if they end up in a situation where they have taken some shortcuts and they're being held accountable and they're being held accountable in a very public way. So whether it is um, the resource management plans throughout the American West that say these are the areas that are ripe for development, these are the areas off limits to development, it's the Desert Renewable Energy Conservation Plan, 10 million acres of public lands in the California desert that says these are the areas that are ripe for solar and wind energy. These are deconflicted corridors for transmission. Mm -hmm. um, these are areas that are important habitat for the desert tortoise or for outdoor recreation or view sheds or, or otherwise. Um, you create a path that companies are going to want to follow because it's in their best economic interest to do so. So I think all of that stuff sticks. Uh, for the Greater Sagegrass Initiative, the U.S. Forest Service and the Bureau of Land Management did 98 resource management plans and 15 environmental impact statements in the space of about three years. An incredible, heroic effort on the part of career staff. Those are hard to do. Um, they take a lot of public input. And when they're done, they stand the test of time. Mm -hmm. So. I'm optimistic that we have crafted a future that makes sense for business, and when it makes sense for business, I don't see it being in the best interests of politicians mm -hmm. uh, or of um, you know cabinet members to unwind that. So, what are you pessimistic about? <laughs> what what areas do you see threatened by um, a loosening of policies and a sort of open door? Um, approach to the oil and gas industry. Should we be concerned that uh, the Arctic Wildlife, National Wildlife Refuge is, is going to be on the table again? Um, what other areas uh, do, do you foresee being opened back up for, for debate? I think that it's, it's fair to say that um, when people take a look at the science and they look at the work that's been done, for example, the comprehensive conservation plan for the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. They will see that the recommendation that the Fish and Wildlife Service made in that CCP, which replaced one that was done in the late 80s, said that these are areas based on science that should not be developed because disturbance to these areas will have irreparable impacts on the porcupine caribou herd, for example, and the habitat of that coastal plain. I think there's little doubt from a geological standpoint that there's oil mm -hmm. under the coastal plain of the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. Uh, but I believe there are places that are too special to develop and that's one of them. It took uh, decades to update that CCP. Mm -hmm. It took um, a lot of science from a variety of people, both inside government and outside government, to reach that thoughtful conclusion. And that CCP would have to be redone if uh, oil and gas development is to be supported, or Congress would have to step up and say, we see that, we see the science, and we're going to ignore it. And I believe the American people will hold their elected officials accountable for doing the right thing for the long term. Mm -hmm. So we have provided all the information. We've gone um, uh, a long way in sharing that very publicly. And I think that uh, any elected officials that would choose to take that on will find that there's tremendous resistance because of the compelling science that's behind those decisions. I want, I want to detour based on something you just said because I've always fi I find it fascinating that there are a lot of environmental and conservation causes that Americans are passionate about, but when it comes particularly to these national elections, 
it's maybe 5% of the overall <laughs> discussion of the issues. And this idea that we're going to hold our elected officials accountable for their environmental decisions just hasn't played out. And, and I, w I wonder if, if that's a source of frustration for you or, or if you have any ideas of why those issues don't seem to res resonate in the, in the campaign cycle. This is a democracy and politicians will respond to issues they feel are important to their constituents. Mm -hmm. For those who care about the environment, it's our responsibility to make our positions heard and known. There are many politicians from both sides of the aisle that support uh, thoughtful conservation, mm -hmm. uh, development in the, right, in the right places, but not development in not the right places. And that is regardless of political affiliation. But if people who care about the environment and about conservation or about access to outdoor recreation don't make their voices heard, those who do will be the squeaky wheel. And mm -hmm. that gets the grease and that's what dominates the cycle. So um, it is really important that we let our elected officials know where we stand. You know, uh, before I took this job and I went to Washington, D.C. with other members of the outdoor industry to make the case to members of Congress, uh, you know, you, you do that and you think, is this making any difference? Is anybody hearing me? I will say that from this side now, yes, mm. your voices are important and people are hearing you. And there's a saying that uh, I learned in one of these meetings that if you're not at the table, you're on the menu. <laughs> if you're not at the table, you're on the menu. So for people that care about environmental issues, you've got to be at the table and you've got to be expressing your views to your elected officials, uh, to the people that are asking the questions in the local debates. Um, when uh, an elected official takes an action that you think undermines those ideals that you have around conservation or environmentalism, it's up to you to let them know that that's not okay. Mm -hmm. It's not okay not just for you, but for future generations. But if we're not talking about that, and the only things that are you know, on the menu, or on the, at the table rather, not on the menu, are things like uh, healthcare reform or tax or um, you know, international policies or trade, then uh, we can't be surprised. Mm -hmm when it doesn't come up as a major issue of the campaign. Yeah. yeah. One of the things that I think that's been encouraging and especially the last decade or so and even more so recently is that there is this emerging um, influence and power of the outdoor industry um, sort of expressing its muscle, uh, reflexing its muscles. The REC Act passed the, uh, the House this right. week and how optimistic are you about the, the sort of the influence that the, the outdoor industry can have, um, especially when we talk about these debates about our public lands that haven't always been factored in, um, not just the fact that people want to recreate there, but that there's actually a real economy behind it. Is that gaining power in, in Washington? The short answer is yes, it absolutely is gaining power, and I'll tell you why. It is because back in 2006, the Outdoor Industry Association did the outdoor rec economy study, the first one, and then again repeated it in 2011 based on hard data that showed that the outdoor recreation economy is almost as big as pharmaceuticals, motor vehicles, and motor vehicle parts combined. I mean, that's extraordinary. Yeah. And so with that report as a basis, and uh, 
I'll compliment my former colleague at REI, Michael Collins, for conceiving of that, for convincing the outdoor industry, and my predecessor company, REI, for paying for it in that first year, and then gaining support from other members of the industry. But the industry learned it's not just about human-powered active outdoor recreation, including hunting and fishing. It's also about RVing, mm -hmm. and it's about uh, ORV use on public land. So let's broaden the net, and let's talk to uh, companies engaged in all aspects of outdoor recreation. Let's put those numbers on the table, and they are extraordinary. So uh, in addition to that kind of being the catalyst and then the Outdoor Industry Association making that available on a state-by-state -state basis, which, by the way, I took with me for every senator that I visited during my confirmation process mm -hmm. so that I could talk to those senators about the importance of the outdoors and conservation and, frankly, the Department of the Interior to the economies of their home states. Mm -hmm. um, we announced uh, more than a year ago that uh, the Bureau of um, Economic Analysis within the Department of Commerce was going to be launching um, a, uh, a study on active outdoor recreation uh, for the, the, uh, its impact on the economy. And of course, as you mentioned, the REC Act just passed, which now codifies that with support from Congress. What does that mean? What, what, is the, what is the REC Act? What will that mean in the future? I know it means that they, that, um, that budgeting will require at least acknowledgement of the, the, the economic impacts of the outdoor industry, but t tell us what that means in the real world. Well, I think what it means in the real world is that you've got the, the power of the statistics available to the U.S. government that will now be made available publicly, mm -hmm. in, and it will be up, frankly, to the industry and to members of Congress and so on to highlight those numbers. Yeah to help support the decisions that they make with regard to conservation and outdoor recreation and the facilitation of those activities. Mm -hmm. So um, it shines a spotlight and it legitimizes this sector of the economy as uh, being very, very important to the American people. Mm -hmm. That narrative has been lost uh, oftentimes to the value, if you will, of public lands for their extractive purposes. Mm -hmm. But what it begins to do is to, is to monetize the value of the lands in conservation. And, and, and frankly, it, it, it doesn't even take into account the values of those landscapes uh, for clean water and clean air mm -hmm. and their ecological services that they provide to all of us. Yeah. It's really more, uh, you know, just talking on an economic basis. And even when you just limit it to that, um, what we will see is that this is a big industry that's worthy of support. It employs millions and millions of people. It supports rural economies, which we know mm -hmm. are struggling more than urban economies right now. And uh, and the legislation will make sure that it continues. Yeah. Um, you talked about the, the Gulf oil spill, and uh, I remember reading an interview with you when you were about to, to come in as, as the new secretary, saying, well, I have, you know, I have this plan and that plan, but you, you never know what's going to happen in those four years that's going to derail you. To me, if, if Ken Salazar had the, the oil spill, one of the things that um, was a huge factor uh, more recently was this, the armed takeover of the Malheur um, Wildlife Sanctuary. And walk me through what your reaction was when that took, takeover happened and what was your role in sort of those three weeks in monitoring the situation there? Unfortunately, it was six weeks. No, six weeks, excuse me. <laughs> no, it's okay. <laughs> um, so in 
so there were actually Mal here, and before that, this uh, standoff in Bunkerville, the Bundy, yeah. the Bundy and, the, and the same um, individuals. Uh, yeah. To some degree, there was overlap in who was involved in both. Let me start by saying that, uh, yes, there was an extraordinarily difficult time, both events. Uh, both are consuming. Uh, one of the almost all-nighters I pulled in this job was over the Bunkerville standoff and making the very difficult, but I think right decision, to pull our people out of harm's way so that blood was not spilled. Um, and that was very difficult uh, to do because we had court orders, you know, for Bundy to remove his cattle. He hasn't paid fees for, you know, decades. Mm -hmm. And uh, they were being grazed on lands that were National Park Service lands as well as BLM lands that were struggling from the impacts of drought. And their cattle, the cattle are still out there. Mm -hmm. um, at the Malheur National Wildlife Refuge, you had a very small fringe group of people that took over the refuge, occupied it for 41 days. and did not reflect the values of the people in that community. In Harney County, in Malheur County, uh, and frankly in the, the other counties of southeastern Oregon. Mm -hmm. um, we were involved every single day, hours every day, multiple meetings every day with the FBI, with local law enforcement, uh, with the land management agencies, with people on the ground. Um, and we took our lead from the FBI, which I think exercised incredible restraint to make sure again that uh, there wasn't a, a bloody standoff at the refuge. Um, but the underlying story is that this was a small group of people that did not gain the support of the community because the land management agency, in this case the Malheur National Wildlife Refuge, had been working for over a decade with members of the community on the plans for the refuge of the long term, the, the comprehensive conservation plan, uh, working with farmers who love these landscapes and love the birds that migrate through, but also need to make a living on how they can both make a living and support the values of the refuge. And because of that, which was the High Desert Partnership, is what it was called, um, you had a community that respected and valued the work, work of the refuge and did not support the occupiers. You had a, a county judge, Judge Grasty, who was the lead county official who stood up to the occupiers and uh, as a result had a recall election, which he won mm -hmm. with a 70% margin. You had a sheriff who was both brave and also committed to upholding the law and the future of um, the residents of his county. And he just got reelected by a wide margin. This is the kind of um, rural America that I've seen. Mm -hmm. It's the kind of rural America that says, how can we support our lives and livelihoods and do it in conjunction with nature? And it also reflects uh, an individual, Chad Cargus, and his work in reaching out to the community that is charting a path for lessons learned by all federal land management agencies on making sure we have that kind of trusting personal relationship with individuals in those communities at every level of government and um, out on the landscape so that these fringe efforts uh, don't take root, mm -hmm. just as they didn't take root at Malheur. 
Yeah, I agree, I agree with you completely that this, this is a fringe element, but maybe a symptom of this um, slightly larger, slightly less radical idea that's, um, that seems to be growing, which is uh, in a lot of Western states of got all this federal land, it should be controlled by the states, it should be given back to the states. We know our people, we know what our needs are, why, why should the federal government control these lands? Um, why is that a bad idea to begin with? <laughs> well, when we engage with local communities and they actually recognize what federal land management looks like and what we do, I'd say that narrative changes. So part of it is on us to communicate with the local, local people and local elected officials about what we do, about you know, what are the gaps in what we'd like to do versus what we're funded to do, mm -hmm. and how we might work together to get that done. Um, the reality is state budgets are not in great shape, and they have not been in great shape for years. Uh, one Western governor, and I, I won't name names, um, said to me, and this is a Republican as well, Sally, I don't want to take over control of the lands you manage. You spend more in firefighting in my state than I spend in education and criminal justice combined. So I can't take over management of the federal public lands. I don't have a budget that supports that. So I think for some people that are making that case, they're ignoring the fact that the taxpayers all over the United States of America support these public lands through firefighting, through invasive species management, through grazing permits, uh, oil and gas permits, planning on the landscapes, facilitating outdoor recreation and tourism, trail maintenance, trail building, uh, you name it. And that that doesn't come for free. And um, so I think that there may be assumptions that people make is that the federal money will still flow, but the land will go to the states, which is an inaccurate assumption. If it's not federal uh, land, then, then you're not going to have the budget that goes along with it. And, and so what does that do? It leaves you with lands that you're going to have to generate sufficient revenue, mm -hmm. either through increased taxation, which is not something people usually like, or through selling the land to the highest bidder. Mm -hmm. And that is the risk uh, of state control of public lands, and we think that's dead wrong. And we think if, if people actually opened their eyes and understood it, they would uh, appreciate that as well. And, th and that narrative is beginning to come out. I think it's easy for a soundbite for an individual elected official to say something like that. Mm -hmm. But when it really comes down to uh, taking these public lands that people have enjoyed recreating on, hunting, fishing, ORVing, hiking, climbing, and the idea is that that may be sold for private property and locked out from the American people, that is a very un-American idea. Uh, and it is one of the things that makes our country great, is the best places are not for the few, they're available to the many. You've made another, another big part of your legacy is um, emphasizing the need to um, both ex expose youth and minority populations to our public lands. Um, why is that important to you, and what kind of sort of measurable progress are we seeing on that front? First, it's important to me because I care deeply about future generations. I, I look back on my childhood, you know, introduced to the outdoors and science in the outdoors at a very early age. And then reflecting as a parent on uh, my own children's lives and how they were more disconnected from nature than I was, even though I had a deep bond to it. 
we've done a lot of work with youth recognizing that it's really a continuum to get kids comfortable in the outdoors. It starts with just play, active outdoor play, take kids outside. So we have got to create an environment where children feel welcome uh, and safe in the outdoors. I'm Caucasian. I've grown up with a history of playing in the outdoors, mm -hmm. and yet that's generally uh, who I see. That is not who the American population reflects. Mm -hmm something that I worked on at REI, it's something the outdoor industry I know is aware of and working on, as well as a lot of nonprofit organizations. We must make the outdoors welcoming to all Americans. One great bridge to doing that is the National Park Service. The National Park Service is America's storyteller. We think of it as the steward of the Grand Canyon and Yosemite and Smokies and, and Acadia National Park, and it is all of those things but it also is America's storyteller. And when I moved to Washington, D.C., it was very evident to me that uh, we had a lot of Civil War heroes, all male, most on horseback, in most of the intersections without, throughout Washington, D.C., but I mm -hmm. saw very few women. Mm -hmm. I saw almost no people of color, unless you, unless you count Mahatma Gandhi, who is in front of the Indian embassy. Um, that's not who America is. And I'm very proud of the fact that with the support of President Obama we, and the National Park Service, we have really changed the narrative on what America's storyteller means. We've created national monuments like the Cesar Chavez National Monument. It talks about the struggle for farm worker rights, which is ongoing. Created the Harriet Tubman National Monument, which is now a national historic site thanks to an act of Congress. Mm -hmm. Uh, Stonewall National Monument in New York City that talks about the struggle for LGBT rights. Um, and it goes on. Um, federal land managers, companies that care about uh, outdoor stewardship um, need to step forward. Mm -hmm. um, last question. So I've read that you're, you and your husband are planning to get in your Prius and take a long road trip back to Washington State. Um, what will you miss about this role as you drive away? Well, I guess one slight correction. We did actually trade in our Prius on a Subaru Outback to get okay. more ground clearance because <laughs> having been out on and got a taste of the public lands that I'd like to get a deeper dive into, they require more ground clearance than my Prius had. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, this is a, it's a very intense job. It's a job that's meant the world to me. But I don't know yet how to put this incredible knowledge to good use. Mm -hmm. There's no better way to figure that out than to be with Mother Nature. Mm -hmm. So yes, Warren and I are going to take a long, slow road trip. He's sacrificed a huge amount. It's hard to be the spouse of a cabinet member. You don't see your spouse very much. Mm -hmm. You don't get to go on trips. Um, you get to read about it sometimes in the newspaper. You leave your kids behind. Mm -hmm. um, I need to rebalance. Yeah. And I understand, as outside readers do, that balance for me, and I think for most of us, comes from Mother Nature. Mm -hmm. So yes, I'm going to get out into the great outdoors. I'm going to take the southern route, because my job ends in January. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm uh, going to head down south. I'm going to visit not only the beautiful natural places, but our historic places. Mm -hmm. I've been to Tuskegee Airmen uh, National Historical Park, 
Warren's a pilot, he's never been there. Neither of us have been to Kitty Hawk, that's gonna be on mm -hmm. the list. Um, there's wildlife refuges, there's tribal communities that I've gotten to know. So yeah, it'll be a long, slow drive and an opportunity to reflect. You know, what's next? Mm -hmm. How do you put this to use? Um, I don't know. I can't know, in part because I'm going flat out, and I have been for four years. So a break will be good, but I'm not done. Mm -hmm. So what does not being done look like? And I'll get a lot of um, people that I think would like to have a piece of me uh, in terms of um, influence, time, resources. Um, the best thing I can do, I think, is to decline everything until I have clarity. Mm -hmm. And there's no better place to get clarity than out in Mother Nature. And I think that uh, uh, how you put this to good use in next steps will become clear in that uh, long, slow drive home. Well, and that, I think it's such a great message. And I think the one message we should be screaming from the rooftops, which is this you know, growing body of science of, of the therapeutic value of being in nature, not just um, the idea of needing to protect it and, and, and recreate in it, but just actually being there um, and the, the inherent value of that to counteract all the distractions you were talking about That's and the exactly discretion right. that comes with it. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'd be happy to report back Good. with my own scientific <laughs> sample of one yeah. on how that works. But, you know, even uh, in this job, I'll escape regularly. Get out to Rock Creek Park. And Get out to Rock Creek Park on my bike. Yeah. Uh, last weekend, you know, Warren and I took a drive out to Bombay Hook National Wildlife Refuge. Yeah. I took the most beautiful picture on my, you know, my phone camera yeah. of a uh, great blue heron reflected in the water with the, you know, the grasses in the foreground and the super moon in the background. Yeah as the sun was setting, of course it's east coast, so it's the reflected uh, light looking east um, over the Atlantic Ocean. I mean, you know, you need that to fuel the soul. And there's a lot of people in this country that haven't had those experiences and don't know how grounding it is. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, that'll be part of my next chapter in some way. Yeah, well thank you very much. All right. <laughs> Chris Kyes talking with Sally Jewell. That conversation took place in Denver, moments after Jewell announced the West Bijou site National Natural Landmark, a 7,600-acre site rich in fossils, including a 1.18-inch band of sediment that marks the extinction of the dinosaurs. This piece was produced by Robbie Carver and me, Peter Frickwright and recorded by Richard Jacobs. The Outside Podcast is a production of Outside Magazine and PRX. We'll be back in two weeks. <laughs>